You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you for joining me for Workplace Perspective. I'm Teresa McQueen. In evaluating risk factors, it's the smart companies that sweat the small stuff. And while terminations are not typically considered small stuff, very few organizations think twice about how effective termination practices can improve their overall risk of litigation. So for today's episode, we'll talk about ways to mitigate some of that risk by focusing on a few termination best practices. I'll provide an overview of some of the more noteworthy labor and employment bills set to take effect January 1st. And since tis the season, we'll end the program by kicking off our 2017 Holiday Survival Guide. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Through the years, I've taken hundreds of intake calls from terminated employees asking whether or not they have any case against their former employers. Surprisingly, more times than not, the impetus for the call wasn't first and foremost Has my employer violated the law? The fact is, most of the callers were employees who were angry, not because of why they were terminated, but because of how they were terminated. In my experience, employees whose termination event left them feeling humiliated, disrespected, or that they'd been set up for termination were far more likely to seek a legal opinion as to the lawfulness of the employer's behavior. And it's this inquiry that can lead to risk because a good attorney won't just ask about the facts of the termination. They'll also ask questions about the employer's other employment practices, wage and hour issues, facts that might disclose relevant issues related to discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. So I wanna start this segment by talking about the nature of at-will employment, which is information important to both employers and employees. And I'll end by looking at some best practices for approaching a termination. Under California law, there's a presumption that all employment is terminable at will. That's California Labor Code section 2922. This means that the employment relationship has no specific term and may be terminated at the will of either party with or without notice and with or without cause. This public policy that individuals should be free to engage in all types of work without obligation is the cornerstone of California's at will employment doctrine. While both freeing and limiting, the nature of at-will employment really seeks to protect both the employer and the employee by allowing for a more fluid movement of workers, which in turn provides a more vibrant and energized workforce. This at-will presumption, it presupposes the absence of a contractual relationship governing employment, making it explicit in its application to, quote, employment having no specified term, unquote. Since a contract for employment ends according to its terms, and since those terms vary depending on the contract, we're not even going to go there. For our purposes today, we're going to focus on non-contractual employment relationships only. 
So when it comes to both defining and subsequently terminating an at-will employment situation, other factors beyond whether or not a contract exists also need to be taken into consideration. An at-will employment relationship is limited by several factors, public policy, constitutional rights, collective bargaining agreements. Taking these factors into consideration, it can be said in essence that an employment relationship may be terminated for any reason, with or without notice, so long as it's not terminated for a wrongful reason. A wrongful reason would be one that, of course, violates California laws, such as termination based on a protected classification, race, religion, sex, national origin, etc. Despite the at-will status of most employment relationship, there remains a strong impetus on the part of employers to provide justification for all terminations. On some level, most employers feel a generalized need to justify a termination decision, whether it actually exists or not. Most often, it's simply the timing of a termination that makes justification necessary. Typically, this happens when you plan on terminating on Friday and the employee walks in on Tuesday and tells you they have to have surgery next month, or they report an act of harassment or retaliation. Keep in mind, any reason so long as it's not a wrongful reason. This means that when considering termination, it's very important to maintain objectivity and take into consideration the larger picture, the players, the overall dynamics, the potential risk factors, as well as the costs and the benefits. The difference between a well thought out exit strategy and a slapdash approach can be significant when it comes to liability. In other words, in terms of overall risk assessment, the how becomes as important as the why. Overall respect for and preservation of an employee's dignity can go a long way in setting the right tone for what is arguably a very difficult situation. In the long run, it really pays to maintain a professional demeanor no matter the circumstances. And if at all possible, every termination should be undertaken in accordance with the company's existing policies and procedures. Following established policies for the act of termination as well as support for the action taken can significantly reduce potential risk factors. Let's talk about best practices when it comes to termination by looking at some important questions to consider in making the decision to terminate. The first question I like to ask is, which policy or procedure, whether it was written or oral, did the employee's actions violate? Some of the most common policies to consider are policies against falsification of information, a misuse or a misappropriation of company property or information policy. Maybe your company has a disclosure of confidential or trade secret information policy. Most companies nowadays have social media and blogging policies. And of course, there's those that are against harassment, discrimination, retaliation, or bullying. You wanna ask, did any actions taken by the employer violate the employee's right to privacy? That has to do with how you received the information that you're acting on. You wanna ask, were the actions of the employee protected under any applicable state or federal law or regulation? Then you wanna look at your own policies and ask, does the applicable policy or procedure that you're using violate any state or federal law or regulation? You don't wanna be relying on an outdated policy. Maybe your handbook hasn't been updated in a while and you don't wanna be relying on something that isn't relevant anymore or something that's not in compliance with state, federal laws, or any regulations. You want to ask, was the conduct off-duty? And if so, was it conduct protected under state law? Employees are protected for lawful off-duty 
conduct, so you want to be careful in answering this question. You want to ask, is the employee's conduct protected under a whistleblower statute? Did the termination come shortly after the employee told you that they were going to report the company to the EPA, or maybe they had reported to a supervisor that they were going to report the company to some governmental entity in the days or weeks before your termination. This is important information to know if you're considering termination. You want to ask if the violation involved a communication, whether it was written or oral, and if so, was that communication related to a political activity or affiliation? And lastly, one of the important questions I think you need to ask is, does the employee have a potential discrimination, harassment, retaliation, or bullying claim? Taking the time to consider these and other important questions before instigating a termination action can reduce risk and really help sustain employee relations. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the mishandling of disciplinary actions and terminations can create an overall atmosphere of resentment and vindication, leading more often than not to potential legal action. Appropriate and effective handling of employee wrongdoing, including termination, can go a long way toward reducing your organization's risk and preserving brand value. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Welcome back. There are a number of new laws taking effect on January 1st, 2018 that will have a significant impact on the workplace. I'm going to run through a quick list of some of the more notable changes. First up, we have AB 46, which has to do with equal pay. AB 46 makes clear that the Equal Pay Act applies to public employees. Along the same lines, AB 168 also has to do with equal pay. This is a significant change and a very important piece of legislation as it prevents an employer from asking about salary history or relying on salary history in making hiring decisions. It also requires an employer to provide the pay scale for the position being applied for if the applicant asks. On the immigration front, we have AB 50, which prevents the employer from voluntarily consenting to allow ICE agents into non-public areas of the workplace unless they have a warrant. It also prevents the employer from consenting to allow ICE agents access to employee records without a subpoena or a court order. SB 63 expands family leave by providing up to 12 weeks of job-protected parental leave for workers at companies with 20 to 49 employees. We have AB 1008, which is California's latest ban-the-box legislation. AB 1008 prohibits employers from considering job applicants' conviction history until after a conditional offer of employment has been made. It also implements specific notification requirements on the employer before the employer can consider conviction history in making an employment decision. We have SB 306, which strengthens retaliation protections under the Labor Code. It allows employees to seek an injunction for acts of retaliation based on Labor Code Section 1102.5 and gives the Labor Commissioner authority to seek injunction and issue citations and penalties to enforce retaliation claims. Labor Code Section 1102.5 prohibits employers from preventing employees from disclosing information to governmental authorities concerning violations of state and federal laws and prevents retaliation for participating in any subsequent investigation. And finally, we have SB 396, which strengthens and expands the Fair Employment and Housing Act's training requirements by requiring employers with 50-plus employees to add training on gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation as part of their anti-harassment training. 
For more detailed information on these and other legislative changes taking effect January 1, 2018, join Sapphire Legal and Owen Dunn Insurance January 9th at the Sheridan Ontario Airport Hotel for our 2018 legislative update. Details and registration information can be found on our website at sapphirelegal.com. That's S-A-F-F-I-R-E-L-E-G-A-L.com. Coming up next, we're kicking off our 2017 Holiday Survival Guide. Learn how to navigate this year's holiday business social scene with style and confidence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. A few weeks ago, I saw my first holiday commercial of the season. And just last week, I attended the first of several holiday business parties on my calendar scheduled between now and New Year's. I love this time of year, and I really look forward to the opportunity to get together with friends and colleagues to catch up and do a bit of holiday-inspired networking. But I also know that, for many, the obligatory company-sponsored holiday celebrations are the stuff of nightmares. And while company-sponsored celebrations may not be as lavish as they once were, the traditional year-end celebration remains a tried-and-true corporate tradition. Done right, the traditional holiday get-together is a great chance to bolster all of your valuable business relationships done wrong, and these get-togethers can have negative and far-reaching impacts on your career. So learning how to handle yourself, knowing how to meet people, engage in small talk, and socialize are all key to surviving the holiday party circuit and presenting yourself in the best light possible. And to help you on your way for the second year in a row, Sapphire Legal is here to help you not only survive, but thrive this holiday season. Critical skills for any business social setting include knowing how to create a positive image of yourself and your company, how to be a good host and a good guest, engage in small talk and to socialize, and of course, knowing how to politely disengage from any social conversation. Over the next four weeks, we'll be publishing a series of podcasts providing business social etiquette tips and insights into all of these critical skills, starting today by helping you create a positive image of yourself and your company. Never underestimate the importance of an RSVP. When it comes to business social events, the first step in creating a positive image starts long before you make your grand entrance. It starts with responding to the invitation. The RSVP, or please respond request, is an important but really often overlooked detail of business etiquette. Failing to respond to an invitation is one of the most frustrating mistakes people make. Did you catch that? By failing to respond to the invitation, you have frustrated your host and are well on your way to making a bad impression and you haven't even set foot in the door. Failing to RSVP sends the message to your host that you really don't think much of the effort that they've taken in putting together their holiday celebration. Or worse, you're holding out for a better offer. The point of etiquette is to build and maintain relationships. And we do this by showing consideration, respect, and honesty with our actions, words, and appearance. Now, the RSVP may seem like a small thing, but it's a terrific way for you to show respect and appreciation and to set yourself apart from the other attendees. And in a world where job performance skills will get you only so far, banking a bit of goodwill and showing off your personal skills might just make the difference when it comes to closing the deal or getting that next plum assignment. So here are a few RSVP tips. First, be sure to respond to the invitation immediately. Waiting until later to send your response is always a big mistake. Invitations can be easily forgotten or lost as they sit in your email inbox or on your desk amongst all the other clutter. I think a really good rule of thumb is to respond within a day or two of receiving the invitation. 
If you're unsure as to your availability, still answer right away and be honest. One of the first things a host worries about is whether or not you got the invitation. So it's important that you let your host know that you received the invitation. The next concern is whether or not you'll be able to attend the event. So you wanna be honest. If you're not sure you can attend, you wanna let the host know, hey, I received your invitation, but I'll get back to you about whether or not I'll actually be able to attend. You wanna be sure you tell them when they can expect you to let them know definitively if you will be able to attend or not. And then of course, don't forget to calendar that date and follow up. If you have to decline, be straightforward and again, honest. There's no need to elaborate. A simple, I have a prior engagement or I'll be on vacation should suffice. It's also bad form to set conditions on your attendance. So asking things before you accept, like what are you gonna be serving or who will be attending? really sets a bad tone and in a business context shows that you're not someone who's good at navigating all types of social situations, which is not a great reputation to have when it comes to the world of business social events. Now, do you ever get confused by regrets only RSVP requests? You're not alone. The idea behind a regrets only request is that you need only reply if you can't attend. Makes sense, that way the host doesn't get inundated with replies, but this means that if your host doesn't hear from you, then they're expecting you to be there. If you can't attend and simply forget to reply or can't recall if you replied or didn't reply, it can pose a problem for the host. So when it comes to this type of an RSVP, I always recommend responding either way so there's no confusion. Now, as I've said, etiquette is about building relationships through our actions, words, and appearance. So you'll wanna be sure that you don't get a reputation as someone who often no-shows at events. Consistently replying yes to a business social event and then failing to show gives the impression that you're either a flake, you're not interested, or you can't manage your time or your calendar. None of those scenarios sends a great message to those around you, especially those in a position to influence your career. You'll also wanna be sure that you take care when changing a no to a yes. If you discover that you can attend an event after having already sent a no, you'll wanna reach out to the host as soon as possible to ask if there's still room for you to attend. What you don't wanna do is just show up. So depending on the event, it's likely not gonna be a problem, but it's always best to let the host decide. Now, bringing uninvited guests. Bringing along uninvited guests, including your spouse, a significant other, or a child, is almost as bad as failing to respond to an invitation. You should never simply show up with an uninvited guest. Don't put your host or your guest on the spot by carelessly thinking it's gonna work out because a lot of venues have a limit on the number of occupants allowed or may simply not allow for adding another guest to dinner and nothing will spoil a deal or put you in a bad light with anyone faster than forcing your host to turn your guest away. And lastly, make note of the dress code when you receive the invitation. The combination of good grooming and good manners is really a surefire recipe for social success in your personal and your professional life. When you're dressed appropriately, the focus stays where it should, on building and strengthening your business relationships. The last thing you wanna do is for that important client or out-of-town partner to be wondering why you're wearing a wrinkled shirt and a stained tie when you really want them to be impressed and focused on your social skills. Your holiday social attire should give you confidence, especially if you're not that comfortable in social settings. So if it's appropriate, wear that lucky tie or those power heels and give yourself that extra special confidence boost. Formal invitations will always include black tie or white tie somewhere on the invitation. Most informal invitations, however, don't include a dress code. 
But for something in between, such as a business-related event, some type of dress code is usually included, either casual dress, business casual, or a no jeans or jacket required statement. If the dress code is not mentioned on the invitation and you're not sure what to do, it's perfectly fine to call the host or maybe call a business contact from the host organization or another invitee to ask. Here's a quick rundown of the basic dress codes. For holidays, for men, a sports coat or a blazer in any color, coordinating slacks, open collar shirt or a dress shirt, tie maybe with a holiday theme. For women, cocktail dress, long skirt with a top, dressy pants or something separate. Little black dresses are always appropriate. Holiday colors and accessories, of course. When it comes to business formal, it typically means for men, dark business suit, dress shirt, conservative tie, leather shoes, and dark socks. For women, business formal tends to mean a suit, business style dress, maybe a dress with a jacket, and either heels or flats. Business casual typically for men means a sports coat or a blazer with slacks or khaki pants, a dress shirt, casual button down, or maybe an open collar or a polo shirt. Ties always optional. Loafers or a loafer style shoe always with socks. For women, business casual can be anything from a skirt, khakis or pants, an open collar shirt, a knit shirt or a sweater, a dress. When it comes to dresses though, you want to avoid spaghetti straps or anything like that that looks just too informal or something with an ultra low neckline. And you always want to check and stick to your company's dress code. That's going to make it easy. Office holiday parties serve to build morale and showcase a company and its personnel. They also provide employees a chance to get better acquainted and establish business and personal relationships. So start the holiday season by distinguishing yourself as someone who knows how to build solid business relationships. Join us next week as we continue our holiday survival guide and talk about being a good host and a good guest. Have a unique perspective you'd like to share when it comes to surviving the corporate holiday party circuit? We'd love to hear it. Send us your tips for surviving and thriving the corporate holiday season to perspective at sapphirelegal.com. I hope you'll pass along our web address, sapphirelegal.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous podcasts. This has been a Sapphire Legal production. Claudia Shamba was the assistant producer, and our music was composed by Stephen Bersaloni. Join us next time for another episode of Workplace Perspective, raising the bar at workplaces everywhere.